This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We have a special guest to speak with today, which would be Evan Thomas, editor of Newsweek magazine and author of the fascinating book, The War Lovers, Roosevelt Lodge Hearst and the Rush to Empire, 1898. The Spanish-American War, although somewhat forgotten, I think uh, in most of the history books, has a few lessons for us in the 21st century. And uh, we're great believers in uh, the expression by George Santayana that uh, those who forget history are condemned to repeat it. Though we have come to conclude, sadly, that even those who know history appear to be condemned to repeat it. Nevertheless, there, there's some uh, worthy things to talk about. We will do that in our second segment today with Evan Thomas of Newsweek. And in our third segment today, we're going to uh, pay a visit to the California State Museum. Speak with a couple people there about their exhibit on the Spanish-American War. How fortuitous, eh? So we got a couple of great segments later on in the program. Be sure to stick around for both. Let's begin the program as we like to do with on this date in history. The date in question is June 24th. By the way, this does mark our first show of the summer. And sadly, since Monday, all the days of the year are going to get shorter. At least until December 21st when the process starts over. It was on June 24th in 1497 when John Cabot, a wealthy Italian merchant, whose name really wasn't John Cabot, who spent only two years in England before following Columbus's course to the land of the Great Khan, or at least trying to. John Cabot sailed west from England and wound up on Cape Breton Island in northern Newfoundland. He claimed this section of what he thought was Eastern Asia for the king. And speaking of English kings, which in that case was Henry VII, 12 years later, on June 24, 1509, Henry VIII was crowned King of England. Coincidentally, 31 years later, on that same day, he divorced Anne of Cleves, who had served as his fourth wife for less than six months. And if you're trying to keep straight Henry VIII's wives, and, and who isn't, the way to remember their fate, and for this we have Robin Fox of the Saturday Morning Folk Show to thank, the sequence was divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, lived. This may be of some use to you if you ever get on Jeopardy. Or perhaps uh, the Bistro 33 Trivia Night every Monday, hosted by KDVS's own Dr. Andy Jones. On this date in 1894, an international agreement was made that the Olympic Games would resume in modern competitions, which they commenced two years later in 1896. On this date in 1900, Oliver Lippincott became the first motorist in America to visit Yosemite National Park. Lippincott would start a trend. Motorists increasingly chose to drive to national parks and thus avoid the more time-consuming train and coach rides, to say nothing of hiking in. This, of course, has been a mixed blessing. It means more people get to visit the park, but uh, the experience once you're there, well, let's say it's sometimes degraded. And the opinion of this correspondent, car camping 
is not camping. This might be a good time to interject that the opinions you hear on this program, however correct, do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regents of the University of California. None of whom I'm pretty sure are car campers. On June 24th in 1916, America's sweetheart, a.k.a. Mary Pickford, became the first Hollywood star to sign a seven-figure movie contract. And that's back when a million bucks was a million bucks. Although we've mentioned it before, I just can't help but mention it again, that uh, a few years later, Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks Sr., Charlie Chaplin, and the director D.W. Griffith got together to form United Artists, which is still with us. And I throw it in because of the great quote always associated with that, uh, that corporate foundation. Someone, I can't remember who, remarked upon hearing that the artists were forming their own studio, that, uh, well, the inmates are now running the asylum. On this date in 1964, the Federal Trade Commission announced that health warnings must be printed on all packs of cigarettes manufactured in the United States. 28 years later to the day, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that printing such government-mandated health warnings on the cigarette packaging did not protect the cigarette companies from paying damages in legal actions brought against them. Boy, and that had to be an example of uh, the lawyer getting up that morning, look him, looking himself in the mirror, offering up the argument that, no, 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 if there's a warning on the package, we have no liability after that, and seeing if he could keep a straight face. I, I, I guess they could. And final item, and one of the classic examples of closing the barn door once all the horses are out. On June 24th in 1970, the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which had given President Lyndon Baines Johnson unusual war powers in the modern era and helped escalate U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War, was then repealed by the Senate by a vote of 81 to 10. And no, we have no idea which ten knuckleheads thought revealing the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution was a bad idea. If you know anything about that, why don't you drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. Inquiring minds want to know. All right, our quote of the day comes from George Bernard Shaw, who said, A life spent making mistakes is not only more honorable, but more useful than a life spent doing nothing. Our quip of the day comes from Leslie Stephen, who said, No good story is quite true. Our joke of the day comes from Denise Robb, who said, You know, I thought spinning was this exotic new exercise at the gym, but it turns out it's just a bunch of people riding stationary bicycles. Yeah, yeah, now they're going to rename using the Stairmaster Stomping. And our bonus joke in a similar vein comes from Rita Rudner, who said, The word aerobics came about when gym instructors got together and said, Gee, If we're going to charge 30 bucks an hour, we just can't call it jumping up and down. Our stat of the day is that uh, Britney Spears is apparently the new queen of Twitter. Sometime earlier this month, the pop star hit 5 million followers. This surpasses actor Ashton Kutcher, who had been the most popular figure on the social networking site previously. And if you're keeping score, apparently on his own Twitter site, Kutcher had this reaction to falling into second. I don't care. And as to why it is 5 million people want to follow the goings-on of Ashton Kutcher, well, we are clueless. To which also Mr. McMillan would add, we don't care.
All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. It was a good week a few weeks back for whoever it is is funding the Tea Party movement, something we're still trying to figure out. But uh, apparently Virginia Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, has now formed a Tea Party-affiliated group. Virginia Thomas announced that her nonprofit Liberty Central will advocate conservative core principles and get involved in the November congressional elections. This has been noted to be a move which could create potential conflicts for her husband. Clarence, Uncle Thomas, noted for never speaking up during the uh, pleadings before the Supreme Court of the United States. If he ever does start talking, people will try to pay close attention as to whether Antonin Scalia's lips are moving. But anyway, Virginia Thomas said that just because her husband became a member of the Supreme Court didn't mean she gave up her First Amendment rights. Legal experts have said that Thomas would be expected to set out any cases in which Liberty Central is a party or takes a position before the court, and good luck with that. All right, it was a bad week last week for cell phone users. Researchers at the University of Utah revealed that uh, motorists who are blabbing on cell phones, even the hands-free type, invariably slow down slightly and don't pay attention to the flow of traffic. Said one researcher, your frontal cortex can handle only so many tasks at one time, so you slow down. Since one in ten drivers is on the phone at any one time, these delays really add up. The estimates are that drivers using cell phone add up to 10% of the time to your commute. And by the way, if you're out there facing the Angelides slowdown, the section between I-5 and 99 on, on uh, Interstate 50, business Interstate 80, in downtown Sacramento, please exercise extra caution during this program. Traffic is bad. It's because people are trying to move to the right to go down to Laguna, which Mr. Angelides built up as a so-called green community that in fact has no connections to Sacramento on rail. When last seen, Phil was trying to get to the bottom of this whole Wall Street mess, dot, 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 to which we say, fill in your own joke here. And finally, it was an ugly week for conservation. When it was leaked out through New Scientist magazine that although Indonesia and Malaysia have long denied that their tropical forests are being burned to make way for palm oil plantations, turns out they've been lying with their teeth. Apparently between 1990 and 2005, palm plantations rocketed by 1.9 million hectares in Malaysia and by more than 3 million hectares in Indonesia. But a study by the UN Food and Agricultural Organization and others apparently revealed the deception. You know, palm oil is something we probably should uh, not purchase. Look for it on the label. We're going to talk about that in the future. In fact, we're going to do a program later this summer where we talk about how to be more green, for real. And part of that, of course, is uh, products we should probably all be avoiding. All right, and as, and as a bonus, we also have the fact that it was an ugly week for privacy. Last month, anyway, when it was revealed that the internet search giant Google admitted that it had snooped on internet communications by wireless computer users. The company had to admit that its Google Streetcar 
that it's Google Street View cars, which drive around cities logging snapshots for integration into Google Maps, had, quote, sampled, unquote, users' communications over unlocked wireless networks. The company blamed a programming oversight and said an independent third party would confirm the day that all the data collected had been destroyed. Whew, boy, I feel better already. And as uh, some follow-up on a story we did years back in conjunction with the movie The, the Wild Parrots of Telegraph Hill, an update on the flock is that it's doing extremely well. Too well, in fact. The flock has tripled over the last 10 years and is now 300 strong. In fact, the numbers seem to be overwhelming the local pet rescue groups. The parrots, which tend to break up into small groups during the day and chatter all over the city, have a fan base. They, of course, were immortalized back in 2005 in the documentary film, which we mentioned, The Wild Parrots, which was based on the 2004 book of the same name by Mark Bittner. They're mentioned now in guidebooks and are monitored by tour groups that like to show off the birds to the tourists from all over the world driving around in double-decker buses. As an aside to the story, if you go to San Francisco to check out the parrots, please don't feed them. San Francisco has now banned feeding the parrots because they're apparently falling ill to a bone disease caused by eating too many seeds and not enough of the blossoms and other foods that they would normally consume. They're apparently also losing their foraging instincts because of the free handouts, which is not only bad for their character, it also makes them easy targets for predators. Now let's hear from our old pal, Mr. Will Durst. Hey guys, Will Durst here with a few words about the reassuring nature of politics as usual. It's as comforting as a Vaseline-lined bathrobe to be reminded that no matter how urgent the crisis, our politicians can and will find the time to grandstand, even if their gargantuan preening gets in the way of actual progress. Like the recent dance with British Petroleum's Tony Hayward. Apparently, this guy doesn't know anything, including how to wipe that priggy smirk off his face. Hayward's disingenuousness was so complete, he was in danger of being charged with impersonating a congressman. The deceit, the whole deceit, and nothing but deceit. Then again, Tony's job is to pose for the cover of yearly financial reports and act as the designated fire hydrant to a pack of media-hungry dogs. As CEO of a huge corporation, he's got lackeys and minions and stooges and toadies for the heavy lifting of remembering things. But results weren't that important. The ritual was, because congressional hearings are to hypocrisy what white is the rice. Especially the House Energy and Commerce Committee's Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigations, code for the big oil guys, the ones who receive thousands of dollars in contributions every year from the very same guys they're supposedly grilling. The only person who maintained his integrity was Texas Representative Joe Barton, who opened the proceedings by apologizing to BP for the president's treatment. At least this guy doesn't turn on his benefactors. The very definition of an honest politician, one who stays bought. But then bigger dogs in his party threatened his seniority, and he called the press back to retract his apology. That's right, he apologized for his apology. Politics as usual, exponential factor four. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst. Always a pleasure to hear from Mr. Durst. That's enough of that. Let's uh, let's take a short break. 
You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. we got plenty more in the next couple segments. Mm-hmm.